90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Um, doing pretty good. Been, you know, catching Pokemon. It's been a busy week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess you should drop some Pokemon whatever you drop. Uh <laughs> In geologically interesting places, so your students might actually go see them. Oh, it's absolutely true. Um, it's already happening, actually. Um, so if you are in need of getting Pokemon, you need to go to any university campus, and it is a smorgasbord of <laughs> Pokestops and gyms and everything. It was really great. I actually stopped in the middle of teaching um, these high school geoscience students yesterday because there was a Zubat above the stream table that they were working on, and I had to stop and catch it, so... Oh, my. <laughs> but I haven't been as busy as you have been this week. Yeah, so I have been at the Scientific Python Conference, or SciPy, uh, since Monday, and I'll be here through Sunday. Oh, so this conference, Scientific Python, I will tell you what my visual of it is. It is of, like, in WALL-E, where the people are riding around on the chairs and not speaking to each other, but they're just on their computers. Is that, is that what's happening? That's what you would expect, maybe, but no, there's actually a ton of interaction going on here. There are people buried in their laptops, but when they're not buried in their laptops, they are discussing coding, best practices, and all these wonderful things with each other over any kind of beverages or Tex-Mex. <laughs> so how many people go to this conference? There's over 600 people here this year. Oh, wow. Is this the biggest one you've been to? This is the biggest one they've ever had. That's awesome. Um, and almost half of those people are first-timers this year. Oh. I think that just points to the whole fact that, you know, this is why you need to pay attention to computers a little bit, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> no, it's there's so many tools growing up in the, the ecosystem. And I know we've talked about Python before on here, and I've gone on about how much I like it and how much I think people should learn it. Uh, so I won't go into that digression again, but this is really just a wonderful place for scientists that use Python and developers that develop code for scientists to use together and discuss things. Um. That's really cool. Um, do you, Are there a lot of people there that are new to Python? Is this something that someone that's just interested would go to, or is this really a you know heavy users type thing? Well, so there's really the whole spectrum. There are people that started Python maybe a couple weeks ago, or maybe when they got here, <laughs> because the first two days of the conference are tutorials, and they have everything from, I have a computer and I want to Python, to you are going to teach people how to Python, or you are going to learn about the advanced features of this uh, dynamic equation solving package. So it really, it's the full range. There are people that write the packages that are sitting here, uh, giving talks, showing off new features and helping people. And there are brand new people as well. Uh, that's really neat. Is this an accessible conference then for everyone? Or I know some of these smaller conferences are really expensive to go to. This one is relatively expensive. For a student, I think I was looking about $500 mm, uh, to okay. come to the whole thing, tutorials and the conference. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it's worth it. It's my favorite conference of the year, and there's a lot included uh, with that. They have all kinds of receptions, job fairs, happy hours. There's food everywhere. Uh, I was talking to a gentleman that works for a corporation 
here and we were just out in the afternoon in the hallway on a break from one of the tutorials and I said, oh yay, it's Swedish Fish Day. <laughs> and he said, this is the only conference I've ever been to where they feed us like children. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's true, in the, in the breaks, uh, yesterday, or a couple days ago there were Swedish Fish, uh, then there will be you know, a huge thing of Twizzlers or jelly beans oh or there's all these wonderful, you know, kind of candy that's just sitting around in the hallway. Uh, there's breakfast included. There's all kinds of food everywhere. It's wonderful. I will say that this description is not helping to, um, I won't say, you know, rise above, but my image of coders just, you know, with Pop-Tarts and Hot Pockets sitting around. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But that's okay. That's still super awesome. Um, are there a lot of students then at this conference? Can you can you gauge that? Yeah, I think there are quite a few students, and there are a lot of people that are on the PhD track. Uh, there are a lot of people that have just finished their PhDs that are maybe still in academia. Maybe some of them have gone full-time into doing software. Uh, there's just a huge range of ages and backgrounds and everything, really. it's It's a great mix. Uh, it sounds like a nice way to sort of get out of your box a little bit too, even though, you know, it's obviously all about Python, but as we talk about and can't emphasize enough the need to talk to people who are not doing exactly what you're doing in order for you to, you know, recharge and get some new ideas, right? Well, yeah, and there have been several sessions, so they, they group Earth and Space Science together. Okay. And that's fascinating because you'll hear a talk from a geologist followed by a talk from somebody that did path planning for the Mars Curiosity rover in the same session. And then you hear a geophysicist say, but can I use that integration routine that you just developed to solve orbital dynamics problems to solve my electromagnetic geophysics problem? Uh, that is super useful. Right. So it's uh, it's really great. And I've actually got a couple of examples. I, I did get to give a talk this year, which is my first time giving a talk. Oh, nice. Uh, it was actually right after the keynote on the first day. So it was the <gasps> first session specific talk. So that was fun. Uh, <laughs> Scary. <laughs> yeah. The videos normally go up. That They do all this and put the videos on YouTube. Uh, they normally go up in a couple days. If it's out by the time this podcast posts, I will put a link in if you want to watch it. Excellent. If it's not, uh, watch on Twitter and that kind of thing. I'll be sure to, to tweet it out. Uh, but so I gave this talk on friction modeling, and I think that was relatively well received. I had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, but there was a talk this morning about a, a Python package that is used for spacecraft navigation, hence the example I gave a moment ago. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought of you, Shannon, because the package is named Monty. <gasps> Excellent. <laughs> yes. So Monty Python, obviously, we don't have enough puns in software. That's so good. <laughs> I definitely appreciate that. Yeah. And there's so many cool new things. In fact, there is also a, a talk that I just very recently got back from, uh, from Lindsay Hege talking about trying to make educational materials uh, development and dissemination be like that in software. Okay. So... You don't write a textbook, and then somebody else does a derivative of that textbook. And in your textbook, if there are problems, it's hard to get corrections out there. Uh, and it's only reviewed by a couple of people before it gets published and all these problems. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
they've been working on ways of taking software best practices to do things like documentation, automated testing, deployment, issue tracking, and develop educational resources with those strategies in mind. So using templates, uh, using things like GitHub to track issues, having figures in the tutorials be automatically generated by code from data. And one of the coolest things I thought was they've set up a repository of equations. So if they want to reference, uh, say, Faraday's law, they reference it back in that repository. So say somebody comes back and says, you have a typo in Faraday's law. They fix it in the repository, and that change automatically propagates throughout all of the tutorials and examples. Hmm. So is this for, like, experiments or for just any kind of teaching? This sounds really different. It is. And this was targeted towards developing materials to use in the classroom as an alternative to traditional textbooks. Okay. Okay. Uh, In fact, we should probably get somebody on to talk about that because (laughs) it was was a whole really cool thing. Uh, Again, if the talk's up in time, I'll put a link in show notes. Uh, So those are a few of the really cool things I've seen. There's been a lot of high-performance computing stuff going on. Uh, we've had several sessions they call boffs or birds of a feather (laughs) uh, where people that are interested in a common topic get together in a room shortly after the lunch break and discuss it oh that's really cool that seems like like forced like get togethers that are really going to get stuff done as opposed to just hoping you're going to see somebody in the hallway and have a conversation that's uh that's pretty neat actually well, yeah, and, and I was talking to somebody that does operations for Project Jupiter, the Jupiter Notebooks, mm-hmm. and they're saying, well, what makes, I said, this is my favorite conference, and they said, what makes it like that? And I think the best answer I could come up with, actually, you already hit right on the head, was things happen here. Ah, that's neat. So does that is that true? Like, I, you've been to a lot of these, right? Are, have you followed up on stuff when you've gotten home then? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of features that have come out in different software packages have been talked about in these things like Birds of a Feather sessions. Uh, I've learned a lot at these conferences and gone back and implemented it in things that I'm doing uh, almost immediately. So it's had a huge impact on me. But there's just, you hear somebody say there's a problem. For example, several years ago that a popular data library called Pandas didn't have a way to handle geospatial data. And a small group of people sat down and during the sprints wrote GeoPandas. So that itch was scratched within a week of us discussing it. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I would say that's definitely different than a lot of, um, a lot of other conferences. Yeah. It's, it's less of a, here is where I'm at in my multi-year research program. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, More of a, here's a cool new, cool new tool. Let's figure out how to apply it and how to make it better. Um, so this is this is interesting to me, and uh, hopefully to some of our listeners that don't go to you know a lot of conferences. You know, we always talk about the big conferences that we go to, right? You know, the American Geophysical Union and Geological Society of America, and these are thousands of people. I, do you think that stuff gets done at SciPy because of the small number of people, or is it just the people in general? Um, I think the small number might help. It's been growing every year, and I haven't really seen a change in that. So I think it has to do with more of the culture of there are people out in the hotel courtyard at one in the morning that are still hacking on a problem. <laughs> 
Um, that's really awesome. Obviously, that's fueled by festive beverages, I'm guessing, which is the common denominator of all geoscience conferences. Well, I think around dinner time that might be true, but you'll see people, there are small cans of Coke and Diet Coke and all this sitting out next to the Swedish fish and jelly beans. And you'll see people <laughs> open up their bag or cargo pants pocket and just start raking them in to make <laughs> oh. it through the night. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yep. That also goes straight into my, this is how coders work. Yep. <laughs> you're feeding, you're feeding the, um, the bias I have. That's pretty good. And well, and one other uh, talk that I've heard so far, and I want to point out, there's lots of talks going on that I ha didn't get to see, and there's still lots coming up. But one other one that uh, you should check out and might be linked, might not be if it's out in time, is reproducible one-button workflows with Jupyter Notebook and SCONS uh, by Jessica Hamrick. It was a really cool way to show how you can, t with one command, run all of your data analysis notebooks, at least what's changed, uh, handle dependencies, make figures, and remake the LaTeX file for your paper all in one wonderful system. Wow. Um, I think we definitely need to revisit this sort of um, topic because I will say that, you know, with GSA coming up and looking at abstracts in the last week or two, there's been a lot of um, email attachments going around that were, you know, final abstract, final, final abstract. <laughs> And I'm having trouble getting through to people, so we're yeah. definitely going to have to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> and what a Jupyter notebook can do for, you know, people that are just starting out. Right. And, I, yeah, there's so many wonderful things that we need to follow up on. Uh, during the tutorial session, uh, I actually took the software carpentry instructor training, so learning how to teach programming, ah. which was two days of intense brain melting teaching pedagogy that was wonderful <laughs> yes mm -hmm. uh yes so <laughs> it can get that way <laughs> oh i mean there are so many things that I, I never would have thought about and the coolest part was the way it was taught to us was look here are scientific studies that have been done on how people learn and we're now going to take those and apply it to how we teach coding it's not i found this works well in my opinion it's here's uh -huh. data and this is why we do it this way. Well, we all love data. <laughs> we do. We all love data. So <laughs> <laughs> This sounds really cool. Like, you're always so excited to go to this conference. And it's, you know, we get stuck in our sort of ruts of conferences and trying to break out of them and everything. It seems like a neat thing to do. Um, one thing that I pointed out this week, teaching these high school students, because a couple of them were actually really interested in computers. And I think a lot of them didn't understand how geosciences and computers could go together. You know, and I pointed out that the British Geological Survey, actually in the next week, I think, is having a hackathon. That's one of the exact ways. And I had a kid get really excited, and he came up to me and asked me several follow-up questions about, you know, well, what kind of data management stuff do you need? And this is a high school kid, you know. Um, so he already sort of was grasping the importance of it right away, and I thought that was really cool. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> Well, let's see. So in the, in the effort of summer shorts here, uh, <laughs> I think we should, we should probably uh, hit some of the feedback that we've got this week. So yeah. uh, first off, we heard from Aaron Soddy, who wrote in about the eel paper that we discussed. <laughs> and we had a, a wonderful discussion over email about ways that they could have tried to determine the internal resistance uh, of the eel. 
And he had a really good point that the closer the impedance of the eel was to the impedance of what it was trying to shock. And Mm -hmm. he cited that uh, human skin uh, was about 1,000 ohms decreasing uh, to maybe 500. That's wet skin. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he just did it back of the envelope for what the internal resistance of the eel was and said maybe hundreds of ohms. And the closer those two numbers are together, the better it can uh, transfer energy to you. Right. So it was interesting that it wasn't in the paper, and I thought that was a really astute observation. Mm-hmm. Yes. I wonder if they have that data or if that's sort of the ongoing. It seemed like this might be ongoing research. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So. Uh, we also got a link that I will put into part of a uh, of the Nature podcast from yes. listener Stephen that talked some about the peer review process and um, research that has been done on the peer review process. I have that queued up. That is my afternoon listening for today. So I'm actually quite excited about that. And just like you were just talking about an alternative to textbooks, I think that's a pretty hot topic. And it's sort of nice to see that this peer review process is kind of a hot topic in our circles as well. Uh, Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And we have more. Uh (laughs) Keep them coming. This is great. Yeah. We heard from listener Jenna, who said that she had recently found us and was catching up and really enjoyed the, uh, the P uh, the earthquake magnitude show. And as well as our interview with Kaya, uh, recently and the, we use statistics show. So that's fantastic. Uh, well, you left out that Jenna has offered to do some interpretive dance of geological processes for us as well. <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm excited about that. well we do have a chance coming up for you to give us more feedback and maybe win some prizes we are really really excited to announce this that's for sure because this is our this is our first listener contest yes so don't disappoint us (laughs) this is going to be a lot of fun if you've ever listened to the npr show wait wait don't tell me you know there's a segment at the end where they read news related limericks and the listener has to fill in the last word or phrase (laughs) right and we're not doing that per se but you're going to write limericks for us because we need to read stuff and we're bored and we want really good limericks (laughs) (laughs) now Obviously, limericks can go downhill very quickly. So as <laughs> Click and Clack would say on Car Talk, it should not rhyme with Nantucket. Exactly. These have to be able to be read on the air. But other than that, anything geo-themed is fair game. Right, exactly. Uh, we don't want to bias you. So anything geosciences that um, strikes your fancy, and you definitely don't have to be a geoscientist to write about the Earth. So um, I'm very excited to see that we get some... Um, really good limericks but we have prizes too this isn't just for fun for us (laughs) yeah so we actually got uh, an email from chris of taylor custom who makes these really awesome uh, sculpted then cast uh, keychains pendants of scientific uh well he says fun and accurate science gifts so they're (laughs) correct things like uh, sedimentary sequences or the heart or all these really really cool uh, things we'll put a link in the show notes taylorcustom.com you can go check out some of his products um and as a science enthusiast you have to appreciate the accurate part right because you see these like cool sciencey trinkets and then you're like are you kidding me that's not how the south american coastline is you know when you <laughs> but these are really amazing especially the stratigraphy keychain my fave hands down lots of people are getting that for christmas i already know 
yes, and there is a uh, magnetic earth necklace on the website where you can pull the earth apart and see uh, the layers. You also have tectonic plates marked on it. Uh, let's see what else is on the website here. We've got some trilobites. Uh, just plate. Uh, there's a plate tectonics keychain. That's actually one of my favorites there. So uh, really, really cool stuff. And you should go check out his website. I would never have thought you could put a subduction zone on a keychain, but there it is. Uh, yeah, but like you said, there it is. So these are really cool. You should go uh, check out. We'll have that linked in the show notes. But be thinking about what you want to do for your geolimerick and send it in to us. We're going to give you about four weeks to do this. So you've got a month, but we really want some great ones. And we are not going to judge these by ourselves because we might be <laughs> biased towards a particular topic that we like uh, uh, so writing an earthquake one is not going to get my vote necessarily we actually have an english person coming on to help us with the judging of these limericks yeah uh john and i thought this would be a good idea for sure because we certainly have our extreme loves in the topic of the geosciences so we're really excited to have a professional uh limerick judger right Yes, so we will have Katie Shearer on, and we will read the uh, the winning limericks, and then hopefully, with uh, with your permission, if you would like us to post your limerick on the website, we will definitely do that as well. Just make sure you say whether we can post it or not, and whether we can post your name with it or not when you send it in. You can send your limericks into us at the normal email address, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. But we'd love to keep getting more and more feedback on the shows. This is getting uh, really fun because every show we've got really great and insightful feedback from folks. Uh, yeah, not to mention ideas and let us know what you're interested in because we definitely want to cater to that and break out of our earthquake magnetism realms that we get stuck in a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I guess that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. Yay! Fun Paper Friday! And I've actually had a complaint from a listener that the cowbell is gone. <gasps> All uh, right, that's it. I'll, I'm going to the ranch store then. Ranch store it is. I will bring this back. Okay. <laughs> I've got so, bear bells, but they're just not the same. <laughs> so mm -hmm. you found this article for us, Interference Puts Satellite Data at Risk by Alexandra Witsey. Uh, right. I thought this was interesting, mainly because I know you like satellites, and I know I needed something to grab your attention since you're having so much fun at SciPy. Um, <laughs> and this is actually a uh, prescient topic because the uh, the next upcoming conference next week is the American Meteorological Society conference where they're actually going to discuss this because there are some problems with transmitting satellite data and with the Pokemon game. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you could actually say that, yes. So <laughs> the, the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, governs the, the radio spectrum. So there's only so much space in the electromagnetic spectrum that we can shove data through, right? especially with radio. So they have divided it up into all of these different bands through what they call the band plan, which <laughs> sounds like something music-related. Yep. But... Uh, <laughs> The band plan says what services can use what portions of the frequency spectrum. And it turns out that where the, uh, the weather satellite data, the NOAA-operated satellites, like the, the geostationary operational environmental satellite, yes, goes, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> where they send data back actually has some overlap with cell carriers. 
Right. And so the small amount of overlap that's there now actually has caused problems. Um, and this is sort of a, you know, the big weather phenomenon last year we had hurricane patricia and it was moving super fast towards mexico and this was in october so sort of outside of the normal hurricane season right and then we've got this super fast really strong hurricane and we actually lost some satellite data because people were using their cell phones and that's extremely dangerous when you're trying to forecast where a massive hurricane is going to make landfall Right. And I mean, this isn't people intentionally causing any problems, right? But electromagnetic interference or radio frequency interference, RFI, is a problem when you have things that are on uh, very close or adjacent bands. And this happens to be, you know, kind of in the the 1.6 gigahertz range. But there's a plan that could make this even worse. Exactly. So we mentioned, you know, that that there's a little bit of overlap, but there's actually a company that is trying to get the FCC to open up a larger range um, for them to use for their cell phone services. And that actually overlaps with most of the ranges that we use with these ghost satellites. And so we've already seen interference And now they want to open it up even more so. And there's actually going to be a public forum during the AMS meeting in uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama next week. That's uh, the 21st of July discussing this because forecasters reasonably so (laughs) have a lot of trepidation with letting with the FCC letting this private company do this. And when there's an emergency, this could cause some real issues. Yeah. I mean, wireless communication has done so much for meteorology, as I pointed out in this article, uh, but we don't want to lose it because it's yes. not just, well, we don't get data. It's actually people could lose their lives and or property because right. we don't have that data. Exactly. We're not talking about fuzzy satellite pictures. They're talking about lack of retrieving a picture at all. So it's not just a little bit of interference that makes it hard. It's complete lack of getting it and why put these multi-million dollar satellites up if we're not going to be able to utilize them to the fullest potential especially in life-threatening situations well and it's not even just satellite data because there are sensors all around especially things like ocean buoys that mm. there's no wi-fi in the middle of the pacific <laughs> yes not yet. so <laughs> they have to relay that data back and the way they do that is through these satellites so we're talking about more than just earth imagery and i mean that's it's definitely a huge problem. It causes data gaps, which are all kinds of nightmares. Uh, but we're talking about visible pictures, infrared pictures, all kinds of multispectral data uh, that when it's gone, it's gone. So there are a few mm-hmm. proposed solutions to this. Uh, we could have a more restrictive band plan, which is always harder to do. Right. Uh, there could be uh, restricted zones around receiving stations. So mm-hmm. you couldn't have transmitters of some power on some frequencies within x miles of a receiving station mm-hmm. uh, or having distributed receiving stations right right um i as you said sort of alluded to earlier i think it's it's harder if we said okay go for this it's harder to sort of take that away you know and no one wants there to be a loss of life because of this so i hope that and i think that this is echoed in the article that you know we take a long time and we actually really investigate this before we move forward on anything because it seems like a pretty it could be a pretty big deal Uh, yes absolutely (laughs) and it's one of those things that 
as somebody walking around that uses uh, weather forecasts, you know, you pull up dark sky and look at it on your phone and put your phone back in your pocket, it's hard to realize that all this machinery goes into play to create that forecast that gets transmitted to your phone and that that act may actually be jeopardizing the forecast. Right, exactly. So the next uh, time your phone locks up and you can't catch that Pokemon you're looking for, you know, maybe you should not complain so much and just be glad <laughs> that you can get to that Pokemon at all. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just so amazing the amount of technology that's out there and nobody really understands the full stack up behind anything oh, because yeah. it's so complicated now. Yep, and exactly. problems like this are just teething problems of us becoming uh, more and more technologically dependent, which is a whole nother topic. It sure is. But with that, (laughs) let's keep this short to a summer short. Um, And so, again, a reminder of where you can send us your limericks. I hope everybody's frantically scribbling this down, right? Uh, Where can they send those to us, John? Oh, you're going to turn this around on me today. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can send them to us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Don't Panic Geo, the website, of course, don'tpanicgeocast.com. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Geo underscore Lehman. Shannon is at Shannon Doolin. And remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. I don't think we've ever done that. Nope. (laughs) I was like, is he going to say it? Is he going to say it? (laughs) Nope. You reversed it on me. I'm going to reverse it on you. (laughs) (laughs) That was scary. That was scary. (laughs) I'm sitting here gloating and being like, is he going to remember all those Twitter emails? (laughs) Oh, we'll definitely put all this in the stinger. Um, Exactly.